Speaking Logically is brought to you by ETF Logic, the leading provider of analytics and portfolio analysis tools for financial advisors. No information within this should be considered trading or investment advice. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Speaking Logically. Uh, today, I'm joined by Liz Simi, who's one of the co-founders and chief legal investment officer at uh, Honey Tree Investment Management. Liz, how are you today? Good. How are you? Excellent. So, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your role in in Honey Tree? Sure. Um, I co-founded the firm with my co-founder Paula Glick in 2018, um, and we launched it as an asset management firm. Um, we're the fourth female-founded asset manager in Canada, um, but we we founded it because there wasn't that many active managers doing ESG integration properly. Um, and we believed we had a, a new way to approach it. And so that's, that's where Honeytree came from. We run, um, our flagship is a global equity strategy. We, um, we're mainly focused on institutional business, but we have some private clients up here in Canada. Um, and we're new, we're very much an emerging manager. Um, our track record's about 18 months. And, uh, you know, we, our, our core focus is responsible growth. So we look for the most responsibly growing companies in the world. Awesome. So how do you guys think, I know a lot of people define ESG a little bit, have different definitions, right? How do you guys define investing responsibly? We think, um, some of the ESG data. So we think of ESG as data. Um, not necessarily as an approach. We think some of the ESG data is fundamental data, fundamental company data, whether it's quant or qual, that helps understand the long-term performance potential of a company. We also believe that purpose-driven companies outperform in the long run because they take care of their stakeholders, their employees and their customers, their supply chains, um, even their shareholders. And uh, instead of focusing only on stock price and shareholders, they focus on a long-term vision. And so that's why they outperform over the long time, over the long term and assessing companies purely on financial information doesn't allow you to dig as deep on some of that stuff. Now it's not the, you know, everyone, some folks have shorter term investment styles or things, you know, but in the large cap equity space, um, the data is evolving really quickly. Um, we call it workforce data and environmental data. Um, that, that's really fundamental company data. And as regulation pushes that reporting forward, because that, that's what's happening, and as companies realize they have the data and report it, it'll become more standardized and we'll, we'll see it in financial statements in the future. So we, we use the data um, like traditional financial fundamental research um, equally alongside that, which is, you know, the the... ESG comes from socially responsible investing and SRI history, which began as, you know, values-based or exclusionary only. And there's the, been this belief for a very long time that that activity alone leads to underperformance. So it's created this sense that, and, and it wasn't based on fact, that was just based on the perception in the investment industry. Um, you know, if you don't have exposure index exposure to energy, if you don't have a sector exposure, you're going to underperform. And, you know, we run a very concentrated active portfolio. So we, you know, we're very agnostic to um, the industry, the, the sector weights. And so that's, you know, that's one of the barriers in 
for the investment industry to, to embrace this type of um, this data and this research, it's because it goes against a lot of the traditional beliefs. Okay. And I love to hear that you guys are female founded, uh, female CIO. Um, it's great to have that diversity. So I'm curious, how do you put a number on something like diversity, right? It's something more qualitative. Is it like, you know, X percent of women in the company, X number of women on the board? Like, how do you guys think about specifically diversity and maybe some other things that might be harder to put, you know, a solid number on? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, when we look at diversity, um, we look for year over year progress um, and, and some minimum standards. And so we believe that a company demonstrating gender or racial diversity improvement is demonstrating that they are agile and innovative and well-governed. So that's why, that's why we use the data. And I think that's an important, um, if, if you don't have a reason to use a set of data, you're going to have problems trying to integrate it into your portfolio construction process. So we, we, we use actually a lot of quant um, data in, in diversity. And in, in when we started, and still now, they don't publish data sets, none of the large providers, and they kind of just started last year publishing um, diversity sets, diversity data sets beyond gender. So even now, board diversity, uh, management diversity, the data sets you can find in, from the large providers are gender only. And we, it was important for us to look at um, real diversity, which is, which is beyond just gender um, and includes racial diversity, LGBTQ and disability. Now the data on the LGBTQ and disability proportion of workforces is, is pretty hard to find or boards. But the companies that we look at are providing relatively robust reporting at the board level, the executive team level, and we, we create our own data, data sets to, to be clear um, because they aren't available on, on racial and gender diversity at the board and executive level. But most of the companies that we look at are now reporting women in leadership year over year for the past five years, women in the workforce year over year for the past five years, technical roles, women in technical roles, and racial diversity in leadership, racial diversity in the workforce. So we're, we're only a few years away from that data being completely standardized. Um, and it's because um, California um, has requirements for reporting uh, this, this information. And so all these companies that, that, that are based there have the data. And, and so now they're, they're publishing it, whether it's in their sustainability report or in their combined annual report. So it seems, you know, from a, if you had to standardize it across 5,000 companies, it, it would be impossible. But when you're looking at kind of core leading responsible growers, um, which is in the larger cap space, the data is getting, you know, it's gone from 2016, Accenture was the first tech company to report any diversity data to they're all doing it and they're all trying to do more and more. Um, there's still a lot of useless stuff that's being reported around um, equity and inclusion, you know, and then that the, you see in, you know, big reports and ERGs and donations, which are, which are great, but they're not, they're not demonstrating progress in a company. They're not demonstrating growth or movement. Um, so we're really looking at the data that's showing year over year changes and progress. And it, it's, it's really a good proxy for, organizational innovation and, and direction. And, 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 you know, if you, if you, it seems so simple, but the way to go from 10% woman in leadership to 20% woman in leadership is, is to make a goal. Well, and, and change your processes and, and, and hire 
more women and retain more women. Um, and, and we see a lot of companies not doing that. Some of the big tech, some of the, you know, the investment sides and engineering firms in, in, in any industry. And then you see companies who are industrial or factories or, or whatever, doing making huge progress on that. And so the idea that it's, you know, a pipeline issue or, or anything like that, it's, it's a board commitment issue. It's a, you know, do we, do we understand that diverse teams that perform over the long term? Yes or no. And it, it's a, it's a signal of, of, of their ability to, to set goals and execute. So it's a, it's a, the data itself is, would be hard for a traditional um, PM to use. Cause you know, you have to explain why, you know, racial diversity and leadership adds to the bottom line. But I think for, for a lot of investors um, and for, for a lot of folks out there, it's pretty outside of the industry. It's pretty intuitive, right? And, and it just goes against a lot of traditional theory in investing, such as nothing matters other than, other than shareholders. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting you mentioned big tech too, right? Because, and here at ETF Logic, you know, we, we a big focus of ours and we came out of working with ETF issuers, right? And when you look at some of the ESG labeled ETFs, right? When you dive into the constituents, some of them, there's a couple in particular that I've looked at. And, you know, we have some ESG scoring that we use from Arabesque and the scores aren't good. And then when you look at the, uh, the holdings, the top four holdings are like Apple, like Facebook, you know, the big tech companies. So it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because I've noticed that too. And I feel like there's been along with the advancements that we've actually been making, you know, when we're talking about investing responsibly, I feel like there's also some people that are kind of hopping on the, the bandwagon and just kind of labeling it as ESG, right? When it's really not uh, curious, your thoughts on that as well. The, the typical large institutional, um, approach to ESG with the exception of some institutions who've been doing it, we'll call it properly um, for, for a decade or two is, well, so we have our portfolio managers, right? There are experts in the financial stuff. They're, they're making decisions on portfolio construction. We need an ESG research team, right? That, e, that researches the ESG data, but it's separate. They're, they're separate. They're not registered portfolio. We have registered portfolio managers up here in Canada, by the way. Um, so when I say that, that's probably confusing, but the ESG team's not making security selection decisions in a lot of these cases um, because it's a secondary set of data. Um, and that's a mix. There's, there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons behind that. They, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know where it fits in security selection. They, uh, they, it goes against their traditional process right? Valuation factor, whatever uh, methodology they're using. And, and so reconciling that is, is difficult. But if you, as long as you have a team that's ESG and you can write reports that's ESG and you sign the PRI, your strategy is ESG, right? And, and, you know, the, the, the bigger picture issue is in the, you know, the, the, all the same problems that are in the traditional investment industry, index hugging, sector hugging, um, you know, fear of being different. And so that's, that's the main reason you see all those names in the top, whether they're systematic or active strategies is because, um, the, it's really about the, the fundamental process 
right? And ESG is a best in sector, or a, you know, a, a limit. We got We can't take these names, but we can we can invest in the rest of the universe. And the problem with that, in in I get this question all the time from from asset allocators, reporters, you name it. Like, why are these companies in an ESG strategy? And, and that's the disconnect between the end client. So the end client could be you or me or a foundation or pension and their work or our work and our beliefs are that companies not destroying the world are good investments. Now, there's a lot of people in the investment industry who might not agree with that, but the end client and responsible who wants to buy this stuff doesn't want to buy it because it makes them feel good. It make, they, they don't want to invest in these companies that are making a huge negative impact on the world because long-term they don't understand the growth potential. Um, and so there's, there's that communication disconnect. Um, and, you know, it comes out, I think, I don't know if you saw the survey I did this weekend, right? It's the, the, the investment industry sees ESG or anything impact as values-based investing. And, and I'm not saying it's not, I'm just saying the, I, that, that handicaps the, the concept and, and says that it's, it's less than from a performance perspective, but the end client doesn't believe that, right? They don't want guns. The guns are, they don't believe guns are going to be a huge part of world manufacturing 20 years from now, right? They want to invest in renewable energy. They want to invest in companies using recycled inputs because it's cheaper and you know better for the world long-term. And they understand that a company doesn't end at you know, their little sphere. They make a huge, they, you know, they understand negative externalities. Somebody has to pay for the, the hazardous waste or the low pay or the lack of healthcare or you know, job safety. Somebody pays for that. It's not usually the company. And regulation will change that and companies have to pay for it, whether it's plastic or emissions limitations or whatever. But the idea that companies are just this little microcosm that only impacts themselves and their share price and shareholders um, goes against basic economics. Um, and so, you know, it, it's I think it's easier for people outside of the industry to 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 kind of piece things together because they're not biased by, you know, our traditional theory. That's interesting. And so you mentioned before that you're based in Canada, right? So you work both in the U.S. and Canada, that's correct, right? Uh, yeah, we're going to do our SEC registration shortly. Okay, excellent. So I'm curious, we're starting to, to ramp up in Canada as well, and we're starting to work with some Canadian advisors and might have a partnership that we announce later the uh, early next year. But um, I'm curious to, to hear from your from your view, what's some of the biggest differences between, you know, the focus on ESG or the industry in, in general, you know, wealth management, investment management in Canada versus the U.S.? In Canada, we're a little bit ahead on the environmental stuff. And that's probably because that's all we've talked about for the last 10 years. Um, so we're closer in line um, uh, to kind of Europe in our, in our responsible investment approach now. We have just as many large banks up here with um, some doing ESG okay and some doing, you know, the, the more marketing style of ESG. Um, and, and we're very bank dominated from a wealth uh, management perspective and to a certain extent from an asset management perspective. And 
one of the things that comes with that is the conflict of interest. So, you know, we, Canada is a very special place. We have a lot of banks and energy and not much else. Um, and so, you know, what happens in ESG is banks do really well on ESG scores, even if, you know, they, they have less than 10% of women in senior investment roles, right? They, they get scores through the roof um, because they have pretty good processes. They've, you know, adopted most of the ESG stuff and they have folks to fill out the forms. Um, the oil sands companies also do really well on ESG because they fill out the forms. They've done a bunch of work on supplier diversity and some emissions reductions. Now, you know, there's, there's not that many responsible investment clients um, who want a lot of oil sands in their portfolios. So the Canadian industry is, has that conflict in that, you know, the, the, it's a, it's a major industry. It's a major client of the banks who are the capital markets groups who are the same asset managers. So we, we spend a lot of time up here um, working and working fossil fuel into our investment, our, our socially responsible investment world. What we don't talk ever about up here is gender diversity and we racial diversity's literally just shown up um, for the first time in, and not in the context of portfolio construction, um, more in the context of let's, let's, you know, um, let's, let's figure out why we have no racial diversity on our boards up here in our, in our research, the US is um, on average, the companies, we have a small Canadian equity portfolio and the average board diversity in Canada of that portfolio is about 35%. And in the US it's about 45%. So that's gender plus race. And that entire difference is racial diversity. And Canada is just as racially diverse as the US. So we are really behind. And this would be true at all in all parts of the business, whether it's corporate boards, asset management teams, advisors, you name it. Um, so we're the investment industry in Canada and in Europe too, um, although they, you know, arguably have a different racial mix. Um, we're very behind in that. And the US is really ahead. You know, there are no diverse manager programs in Canada. The words never come up in Canada at an institutional responsible investment ESG level, whereas obviously anybody in the institutional world in the U.S. knows it's, it's not, it's not that it's made a whole bunch of impact. It's just that folks have been working on it for a while, right? So large state pensions have mandates, you know, New York state's one of the leaders, Texas teachers, um, University of Chicago uh, is one of the, they've started doing the work. They've done the work. So now they, instead of having 1% of their assets managed by woman, um, or, or minorities, now they have 10 or 15 or 20%. So it's, it's the same. Okay. Here's a goal. We're going to work towards it as, as the companies in our portfolio. And, and so the idea that it's impossible or hard to do, like the data says, otherwise the data says the U S has done a good job. Um, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the companies that we look at on both gender and racial diversity, whereas Canada's really only done an okay job on, gender diversity. And so there's, you know, we're, when, when I started, I was not an ESG when I started, I came from the traditional asset management world. Um, and the, the perception that I had was that Canada was the leader in all of this globally, right? Europe was obviously a big leader, but, but that Canada was, you know, everybody was flying down to New York to give talks from our pensions and all this stuff. And then you just look at the data, right? So 
one of our most successful pensions at improving their equity and inclusion, you know, the one leading the conversation has made it finally to 20% senior leaders or women in their organization. They're still not measuring racial diversity. Um, actually, they might have they might have just started that in a recent report, but they hadn't been, right? And so now it's like, oh, okay. And so that's that's our best in class. You know, I um, financial services firms, it's kind of like the blind leading the blind, right? How, how, are, how are investment firms, which are notoriously awful at equity and inclusion, even the best, most highly rated ESG ones globally, um, how, are they, how are they going to lead the conversation about workforce diversity data in portfolio construction? Um, so it's, that's going to be the last thing to come. It's the, the mandates and the requirements and every poor manager walking in, you know, with a team of guys being told by an allocator, your team's not very diverse. Like I've, I've heard, I've heard a lot of stories. We don't run into that problem very much, um, yet, you know, and we have to be very conscious of, of building a diverse team and that, you know, that's racial diversity, experience, diversity, location, income, you know, disability, LGBTQ, it, it's, 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 it's a hard thing to do, but we know, we know companies can do it. The question is, can investment firms do it? And, and there is absolutely some investment firms out there, many run by women um, that are, that are, you know, doing the work, but it's, you know, this industry is um, the fact that we're selling gender equity strategies from teams that don't have gender equity is kind of funny to watch in, you know, I can't do, can't, it, it's my, my, my role in, 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 uh, you know, in, in being a, a, a diverse leader in this industry to say, wait a second, like you guys say you're committed, let's see the evidence. Right. And, and that that's going to become a bigger issue as the data gets standardized and reported because it gets standardized and reported on a corporate level then the end client is going to say, well, what's your data, right? And so you can't just, an ESG firm can't just report their voting track record for 20 pages in a PDF anymore. The end client in three or four years is going to want the full workforce diversity, pay equity data, turnover data, you know, by, by diversity and training and, and that kind of stuff. And, and it's going to be available because they're going to have to provide it. So it'll, that's why this industry is so exciting because it's hopefully, gonna the 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 customer demand at all levels will drive some of the change along with I think some of the guys are getting it you know like I was on a on a regulatory call like a the equivalent of the SEC um, call a, a couple of weeks ago and it was all the former chairs of the Ontario Securities Commission and all almost all men and they spent an hour and they weren't really they were talking about the future but they spent an hour talking about the absolute need for change in this industry around gender and racial diversity and lack of it and so if it's made it to you know past the the more woke ceos last year who were thinking about it it's really kind of ham been hammered in to to folks who who love the industry and want to change it and realize that it's it's yeah, the like it needs to evolve for the end client, right? They're going to lose out on, on opportunities, and it's not about everything being ESG, right? It's about supplier diversity. You know, if if anybody reads lots of annual reports um, or sustainability reports, supplier diversity is huge, um, even in you know companies that aren't that great, and because it's been driven 
by the industries, right? And so eventually supplier diversity will come and hit ETFs and institutional managers and, and advisors, right? Um, and so if a firm, you know, and it's not, it's not woman want a, a female advisor, it's, you know, do I, I open a branch or I, I look at a set of advisors, is there any that I like? And the more broad, you know, the more, the more different clients you can serve, um, the, the bigger your business will be. So it, it's, it's a fascinating kind of slow motion to disaster to watch that I think will end up better um, for all of us. Yeah, it's interesting. I was trying to find a, a stat just now, and I think I might have saw it on Twitter. But basically, you know, more and more the mention of the terms ESG or responsibility, diversity, you know, they've skyrocketed in in earnings calls over the past couple of years or so. So it's definitely going to be interesting to see, you know, as it's becoming more and more prevalent and we get more data, you know, how we're going to be able to turn that around. Um, so I'm, I'm curious how you think, because there's so many different metrics, right? We, we talked about, you know, diversity. We talked about, you know, there's a lot of different stats that go into environmental, right? Um, and the governance and, and social. Um, how do you put that together in a kind of a holistic way, right? And, and how do you rank, like are certain things ranked above others? Is it dependent on the client? I'm curious, you know, how you think about that when you're constructing these, you know, portfolios. Yeah. Um, we go back to responsible growth, which is our goal. So the most responsibly growing companies that's on everything, financials, diversity, you know, environmental inputs and outputs, you know, positive or negative growth. Um, we're looking for that consistency. So because that's our thesis, then we work backwards from there. And, you know, we run a, 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 you know, I know everybody says this, but we run a very differentiated portfolio construction process that we, um, that, that I was trained in and it's, it's an evidence-based process. So it, it removes a lot of traditional theory and, and really works backwards from how do we isolate a subset of outperformers. So our outperformers that we're isolating are, responsible growers, which is just really high, consistent, long-term growth. And we look at all of our inputs. We run a, a quant process up front and then a deep dive process um, later on. But we think of, we treat them all equally, right? So when we're doing our qualification process, we've got some financial stuff, we've got some functional stuff, but we have some ESG stuff too. Um, you know, we use glass door ratings, for example, um, as a cutoff and, and board diversity. And, and so we think having a diverse board is just as important as having consistent revenue growth in that, in that qualification process. When we do our deep dive, again, we've purposely included financial and non-financial inputs to on equal footing. Um, because we think women in leadership change year over year is, uh, I just covered up the mic. <laughs> we think, we think women in leadership change year over year is just as important as free cash flow, cash flow growth. So we put those together under, um, we, we organize our, our research into 12 pillars and all the pillars are treated equally and all the pillars have both financial and non-financial information in them. So we treat them equally, which is, which is kind of different and, and it works in our process. It would not work in a different type of portfolio construction process, which is one of the, the benefits we have is that it, it, working backwards, we know that diverse teams outperform in the long run. We know companies 
reducing their hazardous waste disposal costs. We're going to make more money in the long run. And so we're, we're just using that as additional data along with the financials to understand the consistency of the long-term growth of a company. And, and so instead of saying, you know, it happens, you know, our co companies, is it the, their ESG scores that lead to their outperformance or do they have good ESG scores because they're good companies? Um, scores are a mess. Like, let's be honest. Um, uh, if you, somebody asked you to rate, give all the companies a financial score, we'd, we'd have a thousand different versions of everything from every manager. So nobody should be surprised that the ESG ratings are a mess. They take into account a whole bunch of assumptions. That's why we use mostly raw data. And, and you know, a lot of shops are shifting to that now, which is great um, because there is no detailed diversity data in those data sets. Um, they do look at the diversity in, in kind of a qualitative, but they haven't standardized that data set. So it's, it's really, um, you really, I think, to do ESG properly, to use the data properly, right? Because that's what it's, that's what we believe it's about. You need to have um, a portfolio construction process that is focused on stakeholder governance, not shareholder governance. So there's this idea that the board governs on behalf of the shareholders, that's not true. The board governs on behalf of the stakeholders, employees, community, customers, supply chain, and shareholders. And so you, you have to make that jump in your governance beliefs, um, in your governance research, that, that companies that do that can make money over the long term and perform, which they can. Um, and so it's, it's, not, it's not that just because somebody has an IG, a high ESG score that it's going to do well because everybody's going to buy it. That's ridiculous. Um, it's, it's, it's changing the perspective and the approach to portfolio construction um, that makes the data useful. Otherwise, you know, it's just, it's just ESG research sitting on the side. Excellent. So we're coming up on 30 minutes. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I think, I think my favorite learning over the past couple of years has been how smart everybody who's not an ESG manager is at looking into these products. Um, and it's again, probably the 50th time I've got this question and it's not whether Apple's or Facebook or, or any of those companies are good or bad. It's that the, the consumer or the end client can see that there's a problem with the portfolio construction in a lot of these strategies. And it's hard to find the one, uh, one that works, whether you're a systematic investor, you know, or closer to passive or active. It's, you know, if you, if you want to avoid investing in a company like Facebook because of their data breaches and privacy issues and a whole bunch of stuff, and it's in the top 10 of a fund, um, you know, and it's not in all of them and same, you know, Amazon, you know, and, and the best companies in the world have tons of problems, but they're generally trying to fix them as opposed to, you know, shove them under a rug. And, and so that's the, that's, I think what the end client is seeing in these products and that's where the disconnect is. And so I think, I think just keep on being skeptical 
Um, you know, it's the, that that's our job as consumers, right? Not to just trust everything that's thrown at us um, and to, to demand what we want. Um, and, and sometimes we don't know what we want until it's been created. And I think we're still a few years away from having kind of a really good, um, a really good reflection of products that meet the end client needs, whether that's the team's diversity, the team's beliefs, the, the product itself, the companies in it, how it's, how the, how the research is used. So I think that's, that's my favorite thing about this industry is that, that even some insiders, right, are figuring out that we have a lot of work to do and we can't just, you know, create these products and, 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 and do them from a marketing perspective. It's, there's a much deeper purpose behind this and uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch it kind of change in real time. Yeah, definitely. And super excited for you guys in your firm, uh, Honeytree. I think good luck on your, your SEC filing. Um, can't wait for it to have you doing some more business in the U.S. And hopefully we can meet in person at some point uh, once <laughs> things go back to normal. Yeah. Um, so for those who are interested in learning more about Honeytree, you guys can reach out to Liz, uh, Liz at HoneytreeInvest.com. Um, Liz, any other places you'd want uh some people to look yeah you can find me on twitter with scott and uh the the website's the honeytreeinvest.com as well excellent and your twitter handle again liz simmy s-l-i-z-s-i-m-m-i-e excellent so thank you guys for listening in to another episode of speaking logically um and hope to catch you guys next week thanks again liz thank you